Thank you so much, Chris. Oh, I'm definitely on. Bless you. That's brilliant. Um, yeah, as Chris said, I, I, um, I, I was here uh, um, well, probably about the same time as Chris last used his telescope, apparently. Um, but it is, it is lovely to be, to be back here. This, if you like, is, um, is our base station. Um, this is our, our home church. This is the place from where I was called to be a pastor. And this is the church that supported us, I say us, myself, Claire, our two kids, of which we've got Stuart with us today. Bethan's at university now. I know that much time has passed. Um, and, for, and for the past 10 years, if you like, we have, as a family, been missionaries from here to the people of Telford in Shropshire. And, and it's a real joy to come and bring something of the scriptures to you today, uh, as I know that Jonathan and Chris and John and others do faithfully week by week. And today we've got this passage from James, and it's not a very difficult passage to understand, but my goodness, it's a proper challenge to try and put it into practice. Um, I think you've been doing, going through James anyhow. So just, just to recap, Jesus' half-brother is James, Jesus' younger brother. Somebody, obviously, that knew Jesus very well. Somebody who saw, witnessed an awful lot of what Jesus did, what Jesus taught. And in the early days, I'm sure that James would have found his, his big brother sort of quite difficult to get his head around. I mean, you know, anybody who's got siblings, you know, it's, uh, it's a challenge, isn't it? But when your older brother is also the son of God, it's probably got a whole new dynamic to it. But they were, they were both, you know, brought up good Jewish boys. They would have learned to read and obey the Torah uh, love and obey God, and James would have certainly picked up on the rituals and traditions which set his people apart from the practices of the increasingly secularizing Roman culture around them, a culture which has been squeezing them and challenging them financially, morally, culturally, and religiously. Now, the Pharisees particularly had their idea as to where the answer lay. If everybody would just become a little bit more pious, a little bit more prayer-focused, if you just fasted a bit more, if you just took themselves out of the Roman influence just a bit more, well, then everything would be well, and God would bless them. Now, Jesus' mission was never to encourage people to become a little bit holier or a little bit nicer. Not because that wouldn't be a good thing, but just because it was never going to work. Jesus' mission was to point out that thinking like that is just futile. It is impossible for us imperfect human beings to become perfect before God by our own efforts, no matter how hard we try. And that's what makes Christianity unique as a faith. What humans need to understand is there is no hope in putting our faith in ourselves. We have to kill off that way of thinking. It will do us no good. The only thing that can save us is to rely on a rescue mission initiated by God. 
And Jesus makes it clear again and again through the Gospels that he embodies that rescue mission from God. And we know that this is what Jesus is about because he tells it himself when he says, it's whoever believes in me shall not perish but have everlasting life. And when Jesus says, I am the way in John 14. The only way to be saved is to put our faith humbly in Jesus who is the one who created all those stars that Chris has just talked about. He died to save us from the inevitable consequences of sin, our separation from God. It is Jesus that saves us. It is his resurrection power that proves that we are saved. Jesus alone is the route to our salvation. We are saved by our faith in Jesus. Is that not right? good because that hopefully is what has been preached week by week to you this is the heart of the gospel this is what we proclaim but at the first reading it seems that james is telling us something else he writes about a faith which is dead and useless and can such a faith save and the answer must be clearly no it can't so it's not just our declaration of faith a real, genuine faith or in something will change who we are. It will transform our way of thinking. It will transform our character. It will transform our behavior. And hopefully, we will discover that there is no contradiction. Jesus and James are in complete accord. And if there's any discomfort, it's just the discomfort felt by us in actually having to live out what James is saying. So to begin, in verse 14, James clarifies his purpose. He's out to contrast false claims of faith with the real thing. People whose actions do not match their words cannot expect their faith to be of value. And to do that, James introduces us to two characters. The first character, in verse 15, I call the armchair sympathizer. And uh, here we see him lounging in his comfortable chair in front of his 60-inch TV with uh, TiVo, Sky Plus, and everything else. And he sits idly flicking through the channels. There are images of smoking tower blocks in Ukraine, failed harvest in East Africa. Images of starving children come onto his screen, and his response is immediate. Ah, oh, poor things. I do hope they get some proper shelter soon. How awful to be crushed up in that little boat crossing the Mediterranean. God, I pray that you'll bless them. And thus, muttering sadly, he wanders out of his living room, up the stairs, to adjust the settings on his electric blanket before he goes to bed. But what does he do as a result of what he's seen? asked James. Nothing. His emotions are stirred, but faith, has that moved him out of his comfy armchair to do anything practical about a fellow human being's plight? I guess to make the point even more clear and close to home, James takes the example of somebody who's supposed to be in fellowship with a brother or sister. What's the point of faith? if we don't even know or care about what is going on in the lives of those who are part of our church family, our fellowship together. 
Paul writes similar things elsewhere in Galatians. He says, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. And John in his first letter says, if anybody has material possessions and sees a brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in his heart? Which is a good question. I've come back from Israel and the traditional in the Old and New Testament and still today greeting is to wish other people shalom which is about um, wishing people wholeness and unharmony in their body, in their mind, in their spirit. It's making sure that people are okay, I guess. And it's kind of translated here as, I wish you well. But the point James is making is that faith isn't about just wishing. It's about making sure it happens. If we are the body of Christ, then we read that Christ was moved by compassion to do things. And we need to be the same. And, hey, you know, Lim Baptist, you're pretty good. I mean, I have heard stories of how you've been doing things in the Gambia. And um, I've had a sneak preview, I guess, a little bit of what you might be getting next weekend. So I thoroughly recommend you go to that. But also, what's happening in East Manchester? What you may be able to do at the Creamfields Festival. There are lots of opportunities for us to put our faith into action and do something and be, um, be the church and bring our faith to life. That's what James is on about in this. It's about, instead of making faith just a, a thing in the head, to make it something real. And I suppose that's what we've got to think about today. What do we do? Or what are you going to do? Or have you done? Or will you do in this week that is going to bring your faith to life? That something of your time, something of your giftings, something of your finances, something that you're going to spend and invest in somebody else, maybe in the lives of your brothers and sisters here, how much do you or are you going to invest this week? Is it even in your plan Is a faith worth something or is it just empty? So, okay, so we've heard about the armchair sympathizer. Next, um, he, I think, introduces us to another character who I'm going to call Clever Thinker. Um, This is in verse 18. And the armchair sympathizer is um, all intention and no action, then Clever Thinker is all theory and no practice. James said, somebody will say, one person has faith, another has actions. The clever, fa- clever thinker is the person, if you like, is the someone who has faith. And it's not that they fail to get around to helping needy people in practical ways, in spite of good intentions. The person actually never gets around to even the good intentions, because he rationalizes away the need to turn faith into action by neatly driving a wedge between the two. You get on with your good works, 
I'll get on with my theology and spending time with God. God might have called you to practical work with the needy, but me, well, he's called me to read books and to study and to pray deep and wonderful prayers for you. God needs both kinds. He needs the intellectual, he needs the practical. Let's just not get in each other's way. And over the years, I think the, the, the word evangelical sometimes has, has been kind of abused to the extent that, you know, am I even comfortable using it? Because there is a danger that groups of clever thinkers can spend so much time and so much energy debating and discussing the exact and correct theological stance on a particular issue, exactly what we think that the Bible is saying on a controversial topic, that actually there's no time left for practical outreach to care for the needy, to actually show love. And to justify the inordinate time spent on discussion, they feel that they must somehow come out as theologically superior. And those who get stuck into social action are just, well, they're just the liberals. But what, asked James, is the result of these clever thinkers, powerful theologizing. I believe in God, he concludes, in triumph from all that study. To which James replies... Yeah, that's great. Well done. You've managed to work out what the demons have already worked out. And it's not going to do them any good either. So if we've seen the armchair sympathizer and the clever thinker, now James confronts his listeners with the genuine article exemplified by two characters in the Bible, Abraham and Rahab. And James quotes from Genesis 15. I'll just read from the the verse before. The Lord took him outside and said to Abraham, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. To which Abraham said, Well, it's one with 22 noughts after it. (laughs) Anyhow. Then he said to him, So will your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. It was Abraham's belief that was credited as righteousness or justified him, not what he did. But it is also clear that it's the actions of Abraham are in line with his acceptance of God as being Lord in his life. Indeed, we know that Abraham became so sure of God and God's faithfulness in giving him his son in his old age and all the rest of it, that he would be willing to sacrifice his long-awaited son, certainly believing that God was quite capable of raising him back to life or something better. I don't know, but I know God is amazing, so I will put my faith in him. We, too, are called to a life of faith, which will also necessarily involve sacrifice. Because if it costs us nothing, then is our faith really real? The point that James is making is the same as he made in chapter 1. Your actions in difficult times will separate true faith from a counterfeit variety. 
It's when you've got to make difficult decisions. It's when the chips are down. It was Abraham's belief that was credited as righteousness. But what he did proved that his faith in God was real. And to complete the picture, James introduces us to one last character, Rahab, who is not, at first glance, an obvious choice. She works as a prostitute in the heathen city of Jericho, and as such, she was on the edge of her society and was certainly not included within the people of God. She was just one step away from rejection. She lived a house in a house built into the city wall. Every sense she was a marginalized person. But she understood really quickly that the Israelites were God's people. And she understood the need to care for them and protect the spies. And how they contrasted with the violence and the evil that was rife in the city of Jericho at the time. But look at her actions. She hid them in the roof of her house. She did not give them away even when she received a message from the king of Jericho himself. She risked her life for what she now believed. And we might think it's an odd example for James to choose. But think about how this message must have resonated with the scattered, persecuted Christians that James is writing to. Secret agents scattered among a whole sea of brutal pagan Romans. These small cell churches were going to be the vanguard of the message of God to sweep through the land, not by violence as in the time of Joshua, but in love, following the example of Jesus. What Rahab did was at great personal risk, but she did it because she had faith She saw the wickedness of her own people. She saw the faith and hope living in the lives of the spies. And she took a step of faith. She believed that the God of the Israelites would save her. And that step of faith was proved by her actions. Faith, action, working together. That's what saves her in the end. When was the last time your faith took you out of your comfort zone? When have you been vulnerable enough to share your story of faith recently? When have you just gone on and worked for the kingdom, not looking for reward, but just quietly made things happen, made life better, for somebody. What time in the week do you set aside to serve God, to put your faith into action? What does James conclude from all this? Well, works are important. They are not primary. They must flow as a natural response to the faith that we have in Jesus. What we do can never save us. Only what Jesus has done. But our response needs to be the Jesus response. It needs to be love of God and love of neighbor. 
We need to have God at the center of our lives, not just center of our Sundays, the center of all the different bits of our lives. Someone once said, um, okay, so if I've got a pie, um, how much of it should I give to God? You know, quarter of it, you know, if, 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 you know. And someone very wisely said, the God part is the filling of the pie. Every part of your pie needs to have God in it. And then your life will make sense. A wise person wasn't me. Well, I... An illustration which has stuck me for over a number of years. You see, if we have our right relationship with God, then actually we've got the place to have right relationships with everybody else. And this is the good news, that we have got God who knows how we work, who knows how we function because he is the one who created us. And if we don't have that, look at the alternative. Well... The alternative is to live in the, New, in the Old Testament, isn't it? To try, live a good life, try and do works in our own strength. But that's just to be judged by the old law, knowing that we can never be good enough, which only brings feelings of guilt and inadequacy and worry and despair and death. Because as we've said, nobody is able to be justified by their own righteousness. Faith without works is dead. It's the conclusion James comes to. Or even better, faith without works is a corpse. It's dead. Not only is it dead and useless, but it stinks. Living our lives as armchair sympathizer or clever thinker, yeah, they might sort of have this sense that they're Christians, but... What have they brought that brings life or love or hope to the world? But faith, when animated by the power of the Holy Spirit into loving actions, of that will come and that will necessarily follow. And you've all at some point in your Christian walk realized this and got it and thought, wow. And I know that the, the gang coming back from the Gambia kind of think, wow, I've got this faith. I'm putting it into action. And wow, God's doing stuff and I'm getting blessing. And, you know, not only is faith and works good for other people, it's good for ourselves. It proves that God is working his purposes out. And it proves that we belong to him and it gives us peace and it gives us joy and it gives us all that kind of stuff, doesn't it? The moment of salvation is the moment that the truth of the gospel takes root in our hearts. When we open our heart to Jesus to welcome him, to know that we can trust him with everything. And once we do that, our actions will be different. Our desire will be to follow the person who has saved us. And to follow him is to find freedom and is to find life and life in all of its fullness. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord, we thank you that you are God and we acknowledge that you are God and we are not. But also, Lord, we acknowledge that you are God and you created us for a purpose, that you created us to do good works, that you created us to be part of this new kingdom, this new kingdom of peace and love and joy and hope. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we take our eye off you, we take our eye off the ball, and we find ourselves in a place of worry, we find ourselves in a place of anxiety, we find ourselves in a place of what is the purpose of life. Lord, I pray that today you would help reignite our understanding of faith and works and how they go together. That, Lord, in serving you, not only does it bring glory to you, but, and not only does it bring joy to others, but actually it gives wholeness and completeness to our own hearts and souls. So, Lord, our prayer is, is for shalom. It is for that wholeness. It is for that understanding that although we cannot do it all, we can do something. And just in a moment of quiet now, let's perhaps just think, what is God saying to you? What is it that he might be asking of you just to do this week? Who is the person that you might be able to support, encourage, bring joy to? And how are you going to carve out that time to make sure that happens? Lord God, we thank you that you are alive. We thank you that you are so interested in our lives and in the lives of all those who are in our fellowship and in our town. 